The scripture this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given in the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for displaying our weakness, because in our weakness your strength is found. And I thank you so much that our hope is found not on human beings, but on Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, and indeed who created the universe and who upholds it all by the word of his power. I praise you, Lord, that you are certain and we are not. You are eternal and we are just a vapor. So I love you when things like this happen in a public way because it displays the more superior um, quality of who you are and of what the church is built upon. So I love you, Lord. I love you for who you are. I love you for what you do. I love you that the fact that we will continue this journey all the way to the end, to the day of Christ Jesus, is dependent upon who you are and not dependent upon who we are. We love you and we ask you now to come and glorify yourself as we attempt to honor your word. In the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, we have been working our way through the armor of God over the last several months, and so far we've talked about three pieces of it. We've talked about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and last week we just finished up talking about the shoes of readiness for the gospel of peace. And so today I want to go on to talk about the shield of faith, but just before I do, I do want to mention two more things about the shoes of readiness, one of which I meant to mention last week and the other of which I, I just thought of this last Wednesday and it just moved me enough that I really did want to say something about it. So two more things about the shoes of readiness. Although every Christian is called to put on the shoes of readiness for the gospel of peace, not all Christians are called to spread the gospel in just exactly the same way. We're not all wired the same way. We're not all designed the same way. And therefore, we're not all designed or even called to spread the gospel in the same way. Some of us are really good at cold turkey evangelism. That's probably just a handful. But others of us are not. Some of us are really good at apologetics, at, at offering defenses for the faith in a way that glorifies God and yet honors our opponents. And others of us are not so good at that. Some of us are good at equipping others. Some of us are good at praying. Some of us are good at this. And some of us are good at that. And the thing is, when you put us all together and fill us with the Holy Spirit, we become quite the well-rounded fighting force for the glory of God and the gospel of peace in the world. 
And it's very sad to me when people in the body of Christ are pressured to fit into one particular mold of what it looks like to spread the gospel of peace because that robs glory from God. Let me use a metaphor of trees. Can you imagine if every redwood tree was told that it could no longer be a redwood, but it now had to be a silver maple? Or if a silver maple was told that it had to stop that, now had to be a, a little bonsai tree? Or if someone walked up to a bonsai and said, hey, when are you going to grow up and become a real tree? You're not a real tree. Or we have these little pine trees in our front yard that probably never get bigger than that, that big. What if someone said, something's wrong with you, you need to grow up and become a really, really big tree? Well, that would be tragic. Because the very thing that gives glory to God in the creation of trees is the variety of them. It's amazing to me how God could take the same basic few elements and create such a, a tremendous variety and make them fit in particular contexts. You know, if you took a redwood from Northern California and planted it in Minnesota, it would die. It can't survive here. It is built for that particular context. And so it is in the body of Christ. We're not all shaped to be the same. We're shaped to be just what we are. And so the trick is not to fit into someone's particular mold for you, but to learn who you are in Christ and to be who you are in Christ. Now I happen to think that the best way to do that is by just communing with your Father. I think the best way to discover how God has shaped you and what He has called you to do in the world is simply to draw near to Him and learn to love Him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And in the course of time, He'll let you know who you are. He'll let you know what you're called to do. He'll whisper in your ear. It says in one of the Old Testament books that when the Holy Spirit is in you, He'll tell you, go to the left, go to the right, go straight, go backwards, stop, go faster, whatever. He'll tell you. Commune with God and cooperate with Him in spreading the gospel of peace. So here in a nutshell is what I'm saying. The essence of the point of the shoes of readiness for the gospel of peace is not about technique. It's not about how the gospel is spread. The point is, are you ready to listen to your Father and do what He has commanded you to do out of love and joy and appreciation for Him? That's the point. So I would really encourage you to at least be suspicious or question a little bit any ministry that would try to press you into one particular way of having to spread the gospel because there's not just one way. Our Father is much, much more glorious than that. Second point about the shoes of peace. Even though the calling of Ephesians 16 is incumbent upon all believers, which is to say that every single believer is called to strap on their shoes and be ready to cooperate with our Father in the advancement of the Gospel. Without exception, every Christian is called to do that. Even though that's true, there are seasons where every warrior needs to withdraw from the front lines and heal up a little bit or rest up a little bit or be resupplied. There are probably some of you in this church who have felt a little bit burdened about the call to spread the gospel of peace because there's so much going on in your life that when you hear now that you have another thing that you have to do, it just feels like a weight too hard for you to bear. And if that is you, I want you to hear me for a second. When I say it is okay for you, if your father calls you to crawl up into the shadow of His wings, to crawl up into His lap and experience a season of healing in your life, a season of rest in your life, a season of replenishing, that's okay. That's a good thing. 
The gospel only spreads through people who have received the gospel. And receiving the gospel is not a one-time thing. It doesn't just happen at the moment when you originally believed. Receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that happens every single day over a lifetime. Your Father is ever trying to massage into your soul the truth of the gospel. And if you will let Him minister it to you deeply, you will be able to share it with others powerfully in due time. When we fail to allow the Father to meet our needs and to bring the gospel to bear in our particular circumstance, what we actually do is is harm our ability to share the gospel with other people. Because here's the principle. The gospel is designed to have power in us before it has power through us. So you know Romans, I think it's one sixteen that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, right? Well, that's designed to first have power in me, and then it has power through me. What good does it do me if I go tell the world about this powerful gospel, but the gospel hasn't touched me in any significant way? So please, if the Father calls you aside and says, it's time for me to minister to you for a season, then please feel permission in this church to let Him do that. If you need a season of rest, of replenishing, you are more than welcome to do that. When I was pastoring out in California, there was a guy who became a very close friend of mine named Steve Feaster. Seemed to have a lot of good friends named Steve. Steve, Steve, and Steve. There's about four of you in this church. Well, this guy was Steve Feaster, and he came to our church, and almost right off the bat, he took me aside and told me that he was afraid to start getting really involved because he just felt like he didn't have much to give in that season of his life. And as I heard what he had been going through over the last year or two, I agreed with him. And so I said to him, Steve, listen, if you need to come and just rest in the shadow of your father's wings for a season, you just feel free to do that. Just let us minister to you. Let us love you. Let us be the church to you for a season. And when the time is right, you can strap your shoes back on and get back into the battle. And that's exactly what Steve did, probably for the better part of a year. He just let the church love on him and minister to him, and it was such a healthy thing for him. When the time was right, he put his armor back on and engaged in battle, and to this day, as far as I know, he's still engaged in the battle. So if the father puts his hand on your shoulder and says, son or daughter, come away with me for a season, then please feel in this church you have permission to do that, and you don't really need our permission. Your father knows better than we do anyway. So if you will come near to him... He will come near to you and He'll tell you what you ought to do and when you ought to do that. Now having said that, I do want to offer one word of wisdom at that point. This is kind of a counterintuitive thing, and I know, Kimmy, you'll appreciate this because you've seen this in your life a lot. But sometimes God uses us most powerfully when we feel like we can't be used at all. How many of you have experienced that kind of thing? Right when you feel like you're at the very end of your rope and you have nothing to give, that's when the Father uses you most powerfully. He loves to take weak things and demonstrate His own strength. He loves to do that. So I would just say, as you draw away with Him, trust Him, because in some moment He may still call on you to engage in the gospel of peace, even when you don't feel like you have it in you. You probably don't have it in you, but He has it in Him. Amen? And so He might take your weakness and use you right when you think you might not be able to be used. So, with that, let's move on now to the shield of faith. And I want to begin by uh, just sort of summarizing for you how I see this 
coming in the flow of the thought in Ephesians 6. When I first started this section, one of the things that I said early on is that I don't think we can push too hard on the particular details in Ephesians 6 in terms of exactly what Paul calls each piece of the armor. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he also talks about the armor there in slightly different terms. And so I don't think you can push the details all that far. But as I was praying about the shield of faith earlier this week, I saw something in the pattern of how he presents this thing that really grabbed my attention. And I want to take a few moments and explain that to you now. Paul begins in verse 14 with the belt of truth. And I believe the reason he starts there is because the people of God are a people of truth. That's what characterizes us. The, the devil is a liar. He's a deceiver. And he's been so from the beginning. So when you're transferred from his kingdom over to the kingdom of Christ, it is equal to going from the kingdom of deceit over to the kingdom of truth. So to stand in the army of Christ is to stand under the banner that says truth. We are a people of truth. We seek truth. We love truth. We stand for truth. We tell the truth. We are all about truth. Now on the basis of that and in that atmosphere, Paul moves on to the breastplate of righteousness. And this breastplate is the thing that guarantees our success and guarantees our survival in the battle. Because it's not about us and what we have done. This is why I took five weeks to talk about that piece of armor. Because it is so crucial. To me, I think this is the central, crucial piece of armor without which we would have no hope in the battle. But Jesus Christ shed His blood on that cross and broke His body on that cross and thus removed our sins He also lived a perfectly righteous life and imputed all of that righteousness to us so that we now stand before God who believe in Him as though we were Jesus Christ in terms of our righteousness and purity and holiness and blamelessness before the Father. Now when the devil attacks us and tries to accuse us and knock us down to the ground so as to die, he can't succeed. Because Christ has done for us decisively what we could not do for ourselves. And so now on the basis of that powerful, effective, eternal, long-lasting, Christ-wrought work, Paul says, now put your shoes on. Put your shoes on and be ready on the basis of what Jesus has done. Be ready to go. It's not about you. It's about what He has done. It's not about your techniques. It's about what He has done. The power of God is the Gospel, not our techniques, because of what Jesus Christ has done. So be ready and go into the battle. Now the first piece of armor He mentions after being ready is faith. The shield of faith. And I just think that is so significant. It hit me today that in Roman times, given the way Roman warfare went, or it hit me this week, that any soldier that went into battle without that shield was already dead before the battle started. You had to have that shield or you were certain to be dead. And I think the same thing is true in Christianity. We have to go into battle with the shield, and that particular shield is called the shield of faith. So the very first thing we need, the very first thing we must have, is this shield called faith. 
Now let me say just a couple of words about the details of the shield and about the darts that are being thrown at us that the shield is being used for. And then we'll go on to talk about some particular darts that the devil throws at us this morning. The Roman shield, in terms of what it was, is really nothing fancy at all. Probably the picture you have in your mind is just what it was. It was simply a rectangular shield made of various kinds of metals, depending on what time of history you're talking about, and it was handheld. So every soldier was given a shield. They had a strap there. They would hold it and use it to defend themselves. That's easy enough to grasp. But I think the most important thing that we just have to get about this shield, this is crucially important, we'll pick this idea up, especially in the next two weeks, is that even though the shield is a defensive weapon, it's not a passive weapon. You have to be active with the shield. You don't just sit there. You have to be active with it. So it's defensive for sure, but it's not passive. The belt of truth is passive, right? Nobody fights with a belt. Now, some of you who've been disciplined by your father with a belt might argue with me at this point, but generally speaking, a warrior does not fight with a belt. You just put it on and it's just there. The breastplate of righteousness, we don't fight with that. It's the thing that allows us to survive in battle. It's a passive part of the armor. You put it on and it's just there. You're clothed in it. You don't have to do anything with it. It's just there. The shoes of readiness for the gospel of peace, they're just there. You don't fight with your shoes, right? You run with your shoes. They're there to protect your feet. But the shield, the shield has to be wielded. You have to learn to wield that shield or you will certainly die in battle. So don't forget that idea. And we will we will pick that up often in the next couple of weeks. About the flaming darts of the evil one. That word darts here in the Greek language just literally means projectiles. And so if you look at how that word is used, not just in the Bible, but throughout the ancient literature, you'll see that it's really used to just talk about anything that is thrown at an enemy in the heat of battle. So that's the key to get in your mind. This is something that is thrown. It's not something that's shot with a bow and arrow. It's something that is thrown at close distance. When this word is combined with that word flaming, so flaming projectiles... We know that it's referring to the little darts or the little arrows that Roman soldiers would put right into their shields. Right built into their shield, they had a place for about five arrows. And they would put those there. And when they got close enough to the enemy, they'd light them on fire and hurl them toward their enemy. So that's the thing that Paul has in mind when he talks about the flaming darts of the evil one. And I think the most important thing for us to get here is that This implies proximity in the battle, a close proximity in the battle. Do you remember when we talked about the word wrestle? This has been a few months ago now. But I said up in verse 12, it says that we wrestle with the authorities, etc. That word wrestle implies that we're up close and personal. Because you don't wrestle with someone at a distance, right? Nobody's ever wrestled with somebody who's in a different city. You wrestle with people who are right up in your face. This is hand-to-hand combat. Well, same picture with the darts. The devil and his cohorts are not lobbing darts at you from a long, long distance. They're right up in your face. This is up-close personal battle, and they're throwing flaming darts at you, trying to destroy you. And so the other thing to really keep in mind is this proximity of the battle. Now, this sets us up to talk about the assertion that Paul makes about the shield here in verse 16, and it's pretty amazing. So let's look at verse 16 carefully together, and I'll say a few words about it. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Did you hear that? Did you hear the extent of what Paul just said? He is essentially saying that in every single circumstance of life, no matter how long you live, you will never come across a circumstance that is excluded here. In every single circumstance of life, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish, to quench, to douse, to put out every single flaming arrow that the devil throws at you. If you take up this shield and learn to wield it well, there's literally not one thing the devil can throw at you that will get through because of this shield of faith. Now let me ask you people who have a military background or knowledge, what would you do or how would you react if your commanding officer came up to you and said, hey listen, I have a shield here for you that is literally able to defend against every single weapon that your enemy has. Your enemy doesn't have or ever will have a weapon that can get through this shield of faith. I wonder how you would react to that. Probably you wouldn't believe the person, right? Especially those of you who have seen battle. You'd say, yeah, right. We'll see. Well, I hope that you understand that is the extent of the promise that Paul is making to us here. Beloved, if you will learn to wield the shield of faith, literally nothing will be able to get through to you from the devil. Nothing. Now I thought long and hard about this this week, and I'm sure that if Paul was here with us, that he would admit that in fact sometimes the devil's darts do get through. I don't know how you could be a real person and living on this earth, even in Christ, and not acknowledge the fact that sometimes Christians do get nailed by the devil. But I think what Paul would say is that yes, that's true. But that's not because the shield failed. It's because the person wielding the shield failed. Remember this idea? It's not a passive instrument. You have to wield the shield of faith. And when you fail to wield that shield, there are times when the darts can get through. Now praise be to God, when they do get through, we have the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ to protect us. But all qualifications aside, the truth of the matter is that if we will yield this shield well, we will extinguish every single dart that the evil one throws at us. And I don't know how that strikes you, but that's breathtaking to me. I remember about three months ago going for a walk up one of the streets in my neighborhood, praying about this verse, starting to think about what I would say about the shield of faith, and I just felt like the Lord took my breath away. I said, Lord, every single dart? And I thought about it for 30 minutes. I just thought about it. And I can't escape it. Yes, every single dart extinguished by this shield of faith. So we better get to know what this is about. I want to take the rest of our time just to kind of help this sink in to us. I want to take the rest of our time to talk about four specific darts that the devil throws at us. But first of all, let me be clear that I don't think that the devil or his cohorts are personally responsible for every single temptation that we face in life or every difficulty that we face in life. I remember years ago when I preached through the book of James and I got to chapter 1, I was so shocked that when James talked about the nature of sin, he never even mentioned the devil. You remember uh, Geraldine Flip Wilson's old character? He used to say, the devil made me do it. Well, James doesn't agree at all. James said that the reason we sin is because of our own evil desires. Where he, he uses this word that literally means to be lured away like a fish hook. 
He says we're lured away by our own evil desires and, and that's why we sin. And the truth is that the devil does tempt us regularly, but I don't know about you, but I really don't even need him to tempt me because my own flesh is so broken that I do a pretty fine job of that just myself. So I don't want you to think as I go into this that I think that the devil is responsible for everything that comes our way. And yet at the same time, here is Ephesians 6 just staring us in the face and it's strong and it will not go away. You have a real enemy. And he's not an enemy that's clothed in flesh and blood. He's of the type of rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a reality for us. They are scheming against us. If you take Ephesians 6 at its word, you either have to reject Ephesians 6 or acknowledge that they are scheming against us right this moment. They are coming against us. They do want to throw darts at us. They do want to steal, to kill, to destroy. This is just the reality of life for the Christian. And so though he's not responsible for everything, he is responsible for many things. So I want to talk about four specific darts now. Sometimes the devil hurls flaming darts of indulgence at us and tempts us to want to give in to fleshly desires of one shape or another. And there are so many of these people at every kind of level of society and of every stripe, of every taste, of every everything, have their own particular ways in which they are tempted toward indulgence. But let me just pick one in particular, namely sexual immorality. I didn't want to Google this because I was afraid of what would come up on my computer screen, but I do remember reading something a while back about how much the adult media industry has grown in the last couple of decades. It is now around the world a multi-billion dollar industry. That's just sad and shocking to me. It used to be a day, even when I was younger, when you would have to go to a shameful place to get a hold of such shameful things. But now, all you got to do is take out your fancy internet phone, flip open your laptop, push purchase on your pay-per-view, whatever, whatever, and there it is for you. This shameful stuff has come right into the homes of people across America and around the world. And that's a sad, sad thing. I don't think that the devil is 100% responsible for it, but I personally am convinced that he's the mastermind of this. I think he loves this. And I think Hugh Hefner is one of his main prophets. The devil is behind this. He uses this media every single day to tempt men and women, but mostly men, and even men and women of God, to indulge in things that God has forbidden and are in fact shameful. Even among pastors, I'm ashamed to say this, but it's true. I read a report by James Dobson. This has been several years ago now. And I don't know exactly who was surveyed, but of those pastors, 30% of them admitted to viewing this kind of stuff uh, in the past 12 months. And 10 of them admitted to being addicted to this stuff. So this is pastors we're talking about. And not just that, evangelical pastors we're talking about. 30% had viewed, 10% were addicted. This is incredibly pervasive. And I, and I have to admit to you, I tremble to think about what the statistics would look like if we could get every man and woman of God in the church around the world to be really honest, if they said if they had either viewed or were addicted, I tremble to think at what those numbers would be. The devil has thrown some severely destructive darts at the church and they're getting through. And you better believe he's behind it. Let's say that you're one who is tempted by that kind of a thing. 
What should you do when the devil throws that kind of a flaming dart at you? Well, I don't mean to be overly simplistic here. I have walked through this with many, many men. And when I say that, I'm not exaggerating. I've walked through this problem. I understand the nature of it. I know the destruction of it. I know the difficulty of it. I get it. I really get it. So I don't mean to be simplistic, but the Bible is either true or it's not true, right? And the Bible says that you can extinguish every single flaming dart of the evil one with the shield of faith. So I'm telling you, if you need to overcome this in your life at any level, the thing to do is learn how to wield the shield. And we will talk about this in the next two weeks at great length. The shield of faith, the shield of looking to your Father rather than to yourself or to the resources of the world. That can defeat the devil. If it's you against the devil, you're history. Believe me, he's stronger than you think he is. But if you look to your Father, he's history because our Father's much stronger than the devil thinks he is. So we'll talk more about the particulars in coming weeks. Second kind of a dart. Sometimes the devil throws flaming darts of doubt at us. In fact, as I thought about that this week, I realized that the very first dart he hurled at humanity was a dart of doubt. He said to Adam and Eve, he said, he said, listen, did God really say to you that you should not eat of this tree? Did he really say that? Well, what's he trying to do? He's trying to instill doubt in the minds of Adam and Eve so that they will dismiss the commandments of God, the goodness of God, the beauty of God, the wisdom of God, all of that, and put themselves in the place of God. Put themselves in a place where they say, God, you don't know about my life as much as I do, and so I'm going to call the shots in my life. And they did that. And it was devastating to humanity. Absolutely devastating to humanity. And to this day, he keeps throwing darts of doubt at people. Keeps throwing them. Keeps throwing them. Doubt about the goodness of God in the face of suffering. Or doubt about the holiness of God in the face of temptation. Or doubt about the grace of God in the face of having sinned and having fallen. That devil will tell you, oh, God will never forgive you for what you've done. And he's a liar. Or with some, he throws flaming darts of doubt about even the very existence of God. And you better believe that he is personally involved in this throwing of doubt. And so what do you do? What do you do when you come to a season when you're overcome with doubt? Well, I don't want to be simplistic. And I've shared with you before that I have fallen personally into two seasons of doubt that were just nearly paralyzing to me. I'm telling you, I was in such a deep, dark hole, I didn't know how to get out. I remember walking around the streets of Berkeley where I went to school. I remember walking around just crying out to Jesus, and I said to Him, Lord, I don't know how I got into this doubt where I'm at exactly. I don't know, and I don't know how to get out. Help me. And I, I don't know how to tell you how desperate I felt in that moment. Doubt can be paralyzing. Doubt can destroy your relationship with the Lord. So what do you do? Again, I say the Bible is either true or it's not true. And the Bible says that in every single circumstance of life, take up the shield of faith and you will be able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, some darts are not extinguished quickly. The darts of doubt in my mind took a long time to extinguish, but they were extinguished by faith. So I don't mean to be trite or superficial here, but I just believe the Bible. 
And so in the next coming two weeks, we'll talk about specifically how would you take this shield and overcome something like doubt. Another dart. Sometimes the devil hurls flaming darts of fear at us. Fear that God will not provide. Fear that others will think less of us or even persecute us if we take a stand for the name of Jesus Christ. Fear that we will not be able to do the things that God has called us to do. You remember Peter when Jesus called him to walk out on the water to him. From the boat to him out on the water. And Peter started off well, but he sank because he lacked in faith and he feared. He was afraid. And we can do the same exact thing. Even when Christ calls us into good things, fear can paralyze us. And believe me, the devil wants that. Believe me, he's throwing that kind of fear at you. I got an email a couple of days ago from a brother in India who I had met about two and a half years ago. And he is the head of a really an amazing ministry. I don't use that word lightly. It's just amazing what the Lord is doing there. They're up in the northeast part of India, not far from Alex, in fact. And they have a university up there. And they are literally every week seeing hundreds and hundreds of people coming to Christ. So that over the last year, uh, before I, I met him in January of 07, and in that last year he told us that literally multiple thousands of people had come to Christ. And you have to understand, this is in northeast India, where the, perse- where the persecution is really, really heavy. Down in the south of India, it's kind of like the United States, where people tolerate Christianity pretty well. But up in the northeast, the persecution is very heavy. Thousands are coming to Christ. Well, I got an email from this guy this week, and he asked me if I would come over there and perhaps bring a team. He said, we got all the accommodations that you would ever want. Come on over. And so... I wrote him a, a, a response and I asked him some questions about that and I told him I'd be praying about it and thinking about it and waiting on the Lord for it. And then I went for a bike ride. And as I was riding my bike and thinking and praying about this, I began to ask the Lord. I said, Lord, how would this work? I mean, we're just a small little church. We have scant resources. We're already trying to invest in Alex and we don't have nearly enough to give to Alex as we want to give to her. So how would this work if you call us to go over there? And what I kept hearing in my spirit, I don't know for sure that this was from the Lord. I'll let him speak for himself. But what I kept hearing in my spirit was just this phrase. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Well, that phrase comes from Mark chapter 14 when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Hey, listen, there's a lot of people here and they're hungry, so why don't we send them away for the evening and let them, let them eat? And Jesus said, Well, why don't you give them something to eat? And they said, uh, Hello? Hello? Thousands of people, five loaves, two fish. Anybody home? And Jesus didn't give in to their doubt, didn't give in to their fear. He took the bread, he took the fish, he blessed it and passed them out. And what happened? Everybody ate, everybody was satisfied, 12 baskets were left over. So what's the moral of that story? The moral of the story is that we proceed not on the basis of what we can do, but on the basis of what Jesus can do. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be presumptuous, but what I am saying is if Jesus Christ calls this little tiny church to go to yet another place in India and get involved and give resources or whatever, we cannot look at Him and say, No, Lord, we can't do it. We can't shrink back in fear. We must go forward in faith because it's not about us. It's about Him. So what do you do, believer, when God calls upon you and if you're just being really honest about it, you're afraid. You're afraid. 
And by the way, I think that fear is the emotional response to doubt. The reason we're afraid is because we don't think God can do it or we don't think God will do it. And so we have an emotional, anxiety-ridden reaction to that. That's why Paul said in Philippians 4, don't be anxious, but pray. Don't be anxious, but pray. Anxiety is a sign that you're not trusting God. Prayer is a sign that even if you're afraid, you're trusting God. You're looking to Him. So don't be anxious, but pray. This is what we have to do. If He calls us to go, and I don't know if He'll do this particular thing. I'm just bringing it up as an example. We may go over to this brother. We may not. But whatever God calls this church to do that is far beyond our capacities, and then if we're being honest about it, we're afraid, how shall we deal with that? Well, Paul answers, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. In fear, deal with faith. Finally, one more dart. Sometimes the devil hurls darts of laziness at us, darts of neglect. Sometimes, usually by distracting us um, with things in the world, things that are particularly appealing to us, he distracts us and our attention and our time and our energy and even our money away from the Lord, away from His kingdom and to the things that please us. So the Lord spent of His precious blood to buy us and we turn away from Him for the sake of other things. The devil loves to do this. I had the privilege last night of celebrating the 4th out on Lake Minnetonka and there's a lot of money out there. If the economy is suppressed, you couldn't tell out there. I'll tell you, people were blowing off fireworks that had to cost $250 a piece, and they're blowing off hundreds of these things. And, and I just sat there thinking, in a way, what a massive waste of money. It's like, what if just half of the money that was being wasted on that lake last night, what if half of it went to the kingdom of God? We would be so much farther down the road. But the devil loves to take us away from the kingdom and toward the things of the world that will never last, that are just a vapor. And listen, some of the things he distracts us with are good things, right? Even theology, something I love a lot. I have been distracted by theology away from the Lord that I'm supposedly be, been reading about. It's like I get so caught up in the ideas and the thoughts and the articles that this guy said that and that guy said this that I forget Jesus. So as Mark Driscoll said recently in that thing, Dave, that you sent to me, he said, uh, when a good thing becomes a God thing, it's a bad thing. When a good thing becomes a God thing, it's a bad thing. So the Lord has given us many things to enjoy in balance. But when we put it in His place, that's a bad thing. And the devil loves to make us do that. So, when we're overcome with neglect or laziness or whatever, and we're turning our attention away from Christ and onto the world, what are we to do? The Bible gives a simple answer. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. There is literally not a single dart he could throw at you that cannot be extinguished by faith. And so, next week, I want to take some time. I want to very carefully define what faith is. And I want to show you how I think the Bible conceives that faith is literally a shield for us. And I think that's going to help us a lot. If you can't be here next week, I would really encourage you to listen to that sermon online. Not, not because I'm that great, but because this is that important. You need to learn to be shielded with faith. And then the following week, I'm going to spend a whole week just talking very practically about how practically you wield that thing in the context of life. For today, let's just remember this. Remember Ephesians 6.16. 
that in every single thing you will face today and this week, remember to take up the shield of faith because with it you can extinguish every single flaming dart of the evil one. And when you fail, when his darts get through, the righteousness of Christ is there to protect you and to keep you in him. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, I love you so much for the wisdom of your word. I just rejoice right now in the fact that you have given us the Bible. 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote a letter to a church. Just a guy sitting in a prison writing a letter to a church. And here we are, almost 2,000 years later, reading it and benefiting from it because you are the God who inspired that letter. You are the God who preserved it over all this time. And you are the God who has specifically designed to speak this letter into the life of glory of Christ at this moment of history. And I just love you for that. I thank you for that. I don't take any of that for granted, Lord. And so please glorify your name for doing that on our behalf. And how I pray that as we contemplate the armor of God, and particularly right now the shield of faith, how I pray that you would literally put that shield into our hands, Lord. Teach us how to wield it, I pray. I don't want just to talk about these things, Lord. I want to learn in the ebb and flow of real daily life to be able to use this shield, and I want that for everybody. So please help us. Please come and do for us what I cannot do myself. In the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ, we confess our trust and our hope in you. Amen.